For me, one of the most inspiring aspects of the meditation practice that we do here is its utter simplicity. In the willingness to be present, so much is possible. And in the natural unfolding of the practice, healing happens on so many different levels. Perhaps one of the most important dimensions of this healing is the healing out of insensitivity into a sensitivity of our bodies, our minds and hearts that is potentially so deeply freeing. Sensitivity of the body. We do, with the practice, certainly become more and more aware of the needs and the limitations of our bodies. And we're able then to respond so much more appropriately to these needs and to these limitations. For this is the vehicle that we have this time around. The Buddha said, the body is the temple of the spirit, the raft by which we cross to the other shore. And living less in conflict and more in harmony and in balance with our bodies seems to me to be a profound act of inner compassion. We come too with the practice to see that on whatever level it is that we examine our bodies, the change is happening, that there is nothing solid wherever it is that our examination takes us. Ultimately, it's just elements changing, arising and vanishing in each moment. What the scientists and physicists are telling us now, the Buddha certainly saw and knew two and a half thousand years ago. And living in harmony with all of this change means that in terms of our old age, in terms of the disease and sickness that does happen, that we can live with all of these with much greater dignity and with much more acceptance and far less conflict. Sensitivity to the body, then there's sensitivity to the heart and mind, and this is really where I'd like to focus this evening. We come in the practice to know even the slightest shadings and clouds that pass through our minds, perhaps ones that we'd never known before. And what this means is that in our knowing, we are far less a victim of these changes as they happen. We hear the muffled whispers playing below our worldly persona, below the surface. And in this knowing, too, there is so much freedom possible. We come to hear what somebody once called the unfinished symphony. The unfinished symphony of unfulfilled desires, of uncompleted parts of our lives, of shattered hopes, perhaps, and of dreams that never came true. 
we perhaps hear and feel also the pain of all that is unapproached, of all that is unresolved in our lives. And we feel the cramping that is there. All of this creates such a strong holding sometimes around the heart. And for some of us too, we may come to know a great heaviness of heart, a protectiveness, a closeness that is perhaps there, designed by a young child determined never ever to be wounded again. And this heaviness can be so tight that the great light of our hearts has no way of shining through and the great voice of our hearts has really no way to be heard. And the question then must be, how is it that we can get closer to this symphony, to this heaviness of heart, and say yes to the fear that is there? Yes to the anger, yes to the rage perhaps, to the grief, and yes to the sadness. For what is true is that the path of awareness can bring us close to the heart's domain. But very often it is the practice of forgiveness that can ease our way gently into the center. Tonight I'd like to talk about the practice of forgiveness both as a force in our lives and as a meditation practice in and of itself. But I feel it vital to emphasize, and this is very important, that when considering this question of forgiveness, that I am in no way on any level implying a condoning of something that should never ever have happened. How could we say yes to torture, yes to abuse, yes to murder, yes to rape? That would be unthinkable. Rather, I see forgiveness as a strength and a power and a maturity of heart that can bring deep and profound healing on every level. Just having a little trouble over here. My parents were both born and grew up in South Africa. Both are very, very poor families. And when they were teenagers, both of them went up north, my father to fight in the war and my mother to nurse there. And when they returned to South Africa and were married, it was with the understanding that they probably would never have children because apparently my father was injured in the prisoner of war camp where he spent a number of years. And so it was a great surprise for them when exactly nine months after they were married, <laughs> I turned out. 
And they said to me many times that they were absolutely determined that I would never want for all the things that they never had in their childhood. And one of the decisions that they made when I was very young was that they sent me to an all-boys boarding school in a place called Kimberley in South Africa where about 80% of the world's diamonds come from. And they sent me to the school 300 miles away and I was there for seven years. And during most of those years I was sexually and physically abused by older boys and by the masters, by some of the masters there, in a sustained and often quite brutal way. I'd like to talk tonight about the lessons of forgiveness in, in my own life. Forgiveness relating to my parents for sending me there, to the older boys for what they did, and also for the masters who were there. I now know that the spiritual crisis in my twenties, much of what was unworkable about my life then, had to do with the shadow of those years of boarding school. And it was during a three-month course at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry that it was like these curtains went up, it was like a veil went up, and for the first time I saw objectively the truth of what had happened during all of those years. I knew for the first time that what had happened there was profoundly and deeply wrong. And sitting on my cushion at IMS, I felt again the loneliness, the overwhelming friendlessness, and also the terror and shame of those years. It was really difficult. Beside me, on my cushion, was a rage, a fear, an anger, a sense of betrayal, the magnitude of which I'd never felt before. And these continued for many, many months. Memories and recollections of what that time had been like. And it was during all of this that a letter arrived from my mother in South Africa. And she said in this letter that she didn't understand why it was that I'd given up my career as a financial accountant, why it was that I was meditating. She said that she and my father were really bewildered by the decisions that I'd made. But the one thing that I could be absolutely sure about was that they loved me and that she cared and that she would be, for, she would be there for me in every way possible. It felt like a lightning bolt cutting through what I was dealing with. And I had my first really pure experience of forgiveness. It felt wonderful. It felt warm and it felt like such a great relief. And then it was like my mind got right in there and said, hmm, now we've done with the forgiveness, you know. <laughs> we can get back to the breath now. I felt quite pleased with myself, actually. And that was really the first lesson that I learned, was that really forgiveness is a process so often that the healing 
on one level often opens up the next level where the healing can happen. I feel we need to be so careful that we have no models for how the forgiveness needs to be. There really are no shoulds in the process. Often it is a very slow and gradual and ultimately, I believe, transformative process. And what is important is really that there be a willingness to forgive, an intention to forgive. It's not always possible for the forgiveness to be there. But in the willingness and in the intention, so much is then possible. I see forgiveness as being like a flower, a blossom, that is going to open and it is going to open in its own time and when it's ready. And I feel that if the woundedness is deep, it's possible that the process then has to go that deep also. But at the same time, I must also say that I don't believe that every situation requires that the process be a long and protracted one. Each of us has our own blossom that will and must open in its own way. After that retreat, I decided to return to South Africa. And I went to stay with my parents. And during that visit, I told them everything that had happened at the boarding school. They had no idea of what had gone on. It was really difficult for them. They both cried deeply. For me, it was wonderful. It felt like this barrier sort of came down between me and them. just felt that in the telling, I'd taken such a far deeper refuge in truthfulness with them, and it seemed so important. I also went to the high school and asked them to arrange three meetings for me, one with the student body, one with the staff, and one with the headmaster, with a clergyman that was there at the time that I was at the school, and a number of the other masters at the time. So I went into this meeting with the headmaster and others, and he leant back in his chair, and he pointed behind him and said, oh, and this is the hockey team, and this is the rugby team. Our rugby team, he said, top of the league this year, you know. And I said to him, stop. I said, I've come a long way for this moment. I said, I really don't care at all about the sports teams. I said, all I ask from you is that you listen to everything that I have to say. And for the next, it was a long meeting, it was about an hour and a half, two hours. I told him everything that had happened. And I said to him, you need to have no concern about the accuracy of what I'm telling you. And I told him about the meditation practice and I said to him that for some of us in this process, we go back to times in our history that were very difficult and we experience them free of the fear at the time that required that we had to close down and shut down to protect ourselves. And I told him that my recollection of what happened at the boarding school was clearer to me than the books on his table. They were shattered. 
The clergyman covered his eyes and sort of dissolved into tears in his chair. And the teachers were just very shaky and uncomfortable with what I told them. I felt fantastic. <laughs> I felt that I'd laid down the hugest burden there. And when I left the school, after meeting with the students and the rest of the staff, I was flying. And they said to me, why is it that you don't want to tell us who did these things to you? Because they said, who were the masters? Who were the boys? We want to follow up. And I said to them, I'm not here to blame. I said, I'm not here to point fingers. I said, you were not here 25 years ago. And I said, this is not the time for that to happen. I said, I've come here for three reasons. I said, the first reason is to unburden myself. I said, the second is to speak my truth, which I was unable to do 25 years ago. And the third reason is my hope and prayer that in my telling you this truth, that this will never ever happen again at the school. It was a really important process for me, for there were a number of lessons that I learned in this. The first lesson was the profound importance of getting the truth out into the open. It seems that this is immeasurably important. And it really doesn't seem to matter that the people involved are there. The visibility of what happened seems to me to be important. The other thing that seems to be important is the spirit in which we do our truth-telling. That really we don't in any way keep the cycle of conflict and revenge and retribution going. That really we be very clear about what the intention is in our hearts, in our truth-telling. And I feel that out of that intention, great healing is possible. It's been nine years now since these memories began to happen. And it's changed somewhat in these years. Sometimes it's not so intense and ever-present as it was at the beginning. But usually very often my dreams are still populated by the people of those times. And I guess that's the way it's going to be this lifetime. In preparing this talk and reflecting on what it is that I wanted to say, the issue was stirred up again and it's felt to be more present than it was before. I guess we have to have a really long, enduring mind with the process. And the importance of patience seems to be so great. This is a quote that has meant so much to me over the years. Perhaps you know it. It's by St. Francis de Sales. He said, Be patient with everyone, but above all with yourself. I mean, do not be disheartened by your imperfections, but always rise up with fresh courage. I am glad you make a fresh beginning daily. There is no better means of attainment to the spiritual life than by continually beginning again and never thinking that we have done enough. How are we to be 
patient in dealing with our neighbor's faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own. She or he who is fretted by his or her failings will not correct them. All profitable correction comes from a calm and comes from a peaceful mind. With patience, there have also been priceless lessons of self-love. Some days the forgiveness is just not there, and that needs to be okay too. Keeping the heart open in the hell of its closing is so difficult and yet seems to be so vital and such an act of mercy. There are no shoulds in this process. Really, I feel that forgiveness is a gateway back into our hearts. So often we treat ourselves in ways that we never ever treat anybody else. The Buddha said that if we looked all over the world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and compassion than ourselves. This is Nasagadatta. All you need is already inside you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and with love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. When I returned to North America, I assembled a great pile of literature to send back to the school in South Africa. I felt that I really wanted to help them work with the issue over there. In so many ways, they are more backward and more removed from us over here, and I wanted to support them. A couple of months later, I received a magazine from the school, and this is a magazine where they report glowing accounts of what the old boys are doing. They particularly verbose and eloquent about any of the old boys who visit the school again and come and, <laughs> and, and speak to the students and speak to the staff. And there wasn't a word mentioned about my visit, nothing. And I've not heard from them. I've not had an acknowledgement of the stuff that I sent over. Nothing. And at first that hurt so much. And my lesson in that hurt was very clear. And that is that ultimately forgiveness is an act of self-love. 
It's really a disengagement from somebody else's nightmare. And the outer fruits are in the end unimportant and are really secondary. That really, the forgiveness is a way of extracting ourselves from someone else's nightmare. You may recall that the present Pope was almost assassinated a number of years ago. And this was an account or a statement made by one of the Pope's colleagues when he forgave his would-be assassin. He said, not to forgive is to be imprisoned by the past with old grievances that do not permit life to proceed with new business. Not to forgive is to yield oneself to another's control. If one does not forgive, then one is controlled by another's initiatives and is locked into a sequence of act and response, of outrage and revenge, tit for tat escalating always. The presence is endlessly devoured and overwhelmed by the past. Forgiveness frees the forgiver and extracts the forgiver from someone else's nightmare. Unless there is a breach with the evil past, all we get is the stuttering repetition of evil. And it seems that as we, in the meditation practice, are more and more able and willing to candidly and deeply accept and acknowledge the movements of our own hearts and minds, the more then too we are able to bring the power of forgiveness into our own lives and into our relationships with others. For what seems to be so true, and this is certainly the case in my own experience, is that in one moment I can have the mind and the heart of Mother Teresa, and in the next moment I can have the mind of Adolf Hitler. Looking at us sitting over here as we did a while ago, we all look so much like angels. And yet, certainly in my case, it's possible that I could be embroiled in anger and jealousy and in conflict, sometimes with people that have moved on and are living their lives happily elsewhere, sometimes with people who perhaps are even dead. And the question then is, who is it that is in pain? Who is it that is suffering? I often ask myself when I read the newspapers that if I was born under the same conditions and circumstances and influences as the jailers and the torturers <coughs> and the abusers of this world, would I have acted any differently? This is Thet Nhat Hanh, a wonderful Vietnamese monk. He says, promise me, promise me this day, 
while the sun is just overhead, even as they strike you down with a mountain of hate and violence, remember, brother, man is not our enemy. Just your pity, just your hate, invincible, limitless, hatred will never let you face the beast in man. And one day, when you face this beast alone, your courage intact, your eyes kind, out of your smile will bloom a flower, and those who love you will behold you across 10,000 worlds of dying and of birth. Alone again I'll go on, with bent head, but knowing the immortality of love and on the long rough road both the sun and the moon will shine, lighting my way. With the deepening of the meditation practice too, we come to see that the world in which we live is not random in any way. There is nothing haphazard about what's going on within us and outside of ourselves. That everything is profoundly ordered. And we see also that our happiness and our unhappiness depend not on our wishes, but on our actions and on our intentions. And as this truth is inculcated in our lives, from this perspective of wisdom, when it is that we see somebody out there acting in a way that is hurtful to another or to themselves, we receive what it is that is happening, not with glee or with a sense of self-satisfaction, neither with a feeling of revenge or retribution, but really with the understanding of the pain of the enormously destructive karmic seeds that are being sowed in what is happening. And it seems to me that from this perspective of wisdom, the imperative for forgiveness is overwhelming. This is Gandhi. He says, what is true of individuals is true of nations. One cannot forgive enough. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attitude of the strong. Last year, my mother came over for a visit from South Africa. And during her time here, it was my great privilege to have a very long meeting with her and my therapist and myself. And during the session, I was able to share and express feelings from a place that I thought were lost to me, from a place that was so young and so sore. I cried and I raged from a place that I really thought I'd never be able to touch. 
She was shattered and several times during the afternoon she reached out to me to stop and she reached out to me and said, please forgive me, I'm so sorry. And I said to her, this is my time and I will be heard. And I continued until I'd said absolutely everything that I felt I needed to say and until every tear that needed to fall had fallen. And when I was finished and it was her opportunity to speak, she told me truths about truths of her childhood and her life that I'd never known. And not only had I never heard them before, but she'd never shared them with anybody. The 72-year-old woman had not shared this unbelievably tragic childhood with my father or with any of her friends. And when she'd finished this story, I realized that under the circumstances she'd mothered me very well. My heart opened in a way that I never thought possible. And when I reached out to her and we held each other, it was with a feeling of forgiveness and love that was far beyond anything that I ever thought that we could know. It was really beyond my wildest dreams. And this was a further lesson that I learnt about forgiveness, is the importance of opening to the pain of those that have hurt us, whether it's advertently or whether it's inadvertently as much as possible, if possible, and when possible. This would seem to be a preciousness beyond words. For really the truth is that ultimately, irrespective of everything that was done and the reasons why it was done, is that we all, as human beings, want desperately to be happy and we sometimes really don't know how to go about it. For me the process of forgiveness has on reflection been so much like a flower opening in the morning sun. Each petal making space for the next petal to open. And I feel that our willingness to enter tenderly the places of our woundedness and pain bring forth in time that which is necessary for our ever-deepening healing to happen. I sat a six-week retreat over Christmas, the New Year, and into January. And during this retreat, my own flower opened somewhat further what feel to be like the very last pieces in an old and long puzzle seem to have fallen into place. And I'm now living with the memories and very clear recollections and the truth that my father, in his pain and in his confusion and in his fear, sexually assaulted me in a really brutal way from the earliest years of my infancy.
I never knew this before. Shortly after these images and memories started flooding back, I was sitting with a friend at IMS, telling her what was happening, and she said to me, she said, oh, now you have to go through colossal rage and shame and terror. She said, this is going to be another whole long process now. And this voice within me just stirred. I feel it was the real voice of wisdom, and this big no came out, a real resounding no to what she was saying to me. And I resolved in that moment that I was going to let this process be exactly as it was, no assumptions at all. And as much as possible, this is how these intervening months have been for me. No infrastructure, no preconceived idea about how this particular piece of information is going to manifest in my life. And the truth really is that the impact of this information has been very different from what I would have expected. There's been a great peace and a great calm in this knowing. Certainly there have been feelings, sometimes strong, but really the most pervading sense of these last months has been one of the deepest gratitude for the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, for the meditation practice. A real appreciation for the information that I now have. Things seem so much more workable now. And also, in closing, it is so true for me to say that there is a profoundly deep sense of relief and a feeling of letting go that is there now. This is Trungpa. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find as you look closely that you are looking into outer space. <clears throat> what are you? Where is your heart if you look? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid there. Of course you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or if you've fallen possessively in love, but that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except tenderness. You feel sore, you feel soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel a tremendous sadness. Ultimately, this kind of sadness does not come because you've been mistreated because someone has insulted you, or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin and there is no tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is open and tender 
and very personal. And this open fearlessness comes from letting the world touch your heart. May we sit, please, for a few minutes during which I'll give instructions for a short guided forgiveness meditation. Allow, please, your attention, when ready, to drop to the heart center, that space in the middle of the ribcage, the emotional center of the body. Consider forgiveness, allowing, if possible, a sense of feeling of forgiveness to arise in the heart. It might be a sensation in the body. It may be an image. Allowing, if possible, forgiveness to arise. And allowing to my words to echo quietly in your heart and pass through, being aware of the feelings that are there. I am willing to forgive myself. I forgive myself. I forgive myself for any suffering or pain I may have caused by my words, my thoughts, my actions. I forgive myself. Whether inadvertently or inadvertently, I cause the suffering or pain. I am willing to forgive myself. Remembering to keep breathing.
remembering to keep breathing allowing the sense of feeling of forgiveness to if possible fill the heart the body and if there's no forgiveness possible that's okay too I am willing to forgive myself. And now opening up a little wider and bringing to mind, to the heart, a sense or the image of someone that is very dear to you someone whom you find it easy to have loving thoughts for and extending these feelings of forgiveness to include this person I forgive you I am willing to forgive you for any pain or suffering you may have caused me by your words your thoughts or your deeds advertently or inadvertently I forgive you an opportunity for letting go an opportunity for clearing the decks I forgive you and now if you will please bring the image of someone with whom perhaps you have a little difficulty maybe not the big issue but someone with whom you have some complication bringing a sense or an image of this person and extending these feelings of forgiveness I am willing to forgive you I forgive you for the suffering for the hurt that you've caused me by your words your thoughts and your actions intentional or unintentional I am willing to forgive even you keep breathing I forgive you and in the last few moments perhaps if possible opening your hearts wide and living this feeling of forgiveness extending it outward to include all beings if possible 
May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May all beings know forgiveness in their lives. And may all beings be freed from suffering. Thank you. So this time now is an opportunity for any dialogue and discussion that may need to happen. Are the windows as open as they can possibly be? (laughs) Maybe we could open that door. That, That might help a little. Did it, I, I, I don't know if I understood it well, did it, did it come while practicing? Yeah, what happened was um, um, I began to, to feel a lot of constriction in my throat mm-hmm. and in my genitals and I suddenly remembered and I could smell my father's hands, I could smell the cigarettes on his hands was like over my face and I experienced again what he was doing which was sexually stimulating me and I was a rural I was a, a month two months old it was very clear I think that what happens in some way I don't fully understand is that is that it's so terrifying that it just freezes you know you know and I think that in the time of opening there can be a release of those Im- images. And then it's just a flood, you know. Of memories that you weren't aware of. Yeah, that I'd never, th- I'd not thought before. Um, I've been 
working my way into thoughts of forgiveness because I'm coming into the season of a very painful anniversary. And believe that at some time or other, I want to communicate with someone. It will have to be by letter. It will not be a situation in which there can be a supportive third person. What, what I'd like your, re your reflection so that I can resonate with centers around the issue of containing it and doing the work all in solitude. Or, or bringing the other in once one is able not to accuse and blame. How, and perhaps the question is premature. Perhaps if I keep going into it, it will answer itself for me. But it's an, it's an issue that's come up for me in other kinds of times, too, and I'm finding myself, you know, right at it in this process. So if you could reflect on that, it might be helpful to others as well. It'd be helpful to me. I don't want to give the impression that I didn't at times have extremely forceful and angry interactions with my father, because I certainly did. You know the story of me and my father. There were points in our history when I absolutely exploded against his overbearing authority over me. And I didn't realize the depth from which that explosion came, because it was 10 years ago when he was still alive. And, you know, it was me trying to disengage from the power which he established and the dominion which he established over me. So, um, you know, I think that it might be very appropriate at times, you know, to work with the very strong feelings that are there in ways that are appropriate, either with others or with this person. I think each situation is very specific to itself, you know. So I don't want to give the impression that it's necessarily a passive sort of process. I feel that there are elements of it that need to be really engaged, you know. Um, I think that in the truth-telling there is healing. I think that in that giving great care to the intention behind the way in which we do that truth-telling is healing too. Because I think that that is the point at which the cycle of violence can be continued or the cycle of violence can be interrupted, you know. And I think that you're no stranger to the idea of community and support. And I feel that, in my experience, the benefits of community and support in dealing with this situation have been enormous and have been irreplaceable. So, you know, when you said it, it's solitary, I think, yes, the times are solitary when only we can feel how painful it is. 
but I think that the idea that it needs to necessarily be a totally solitary process, I think is questionable. And I think that we can learn from others that are going through the same process, you know. I hope that was helpful. forgiveness, the, the conventional wisdom seems to be that one can't forgive others until one can forgive oneself. And yet it feels that in my own work, it has been much, much easier to forgive the others than myself. And that what I'm wondering about is the struggle right now is the realization that in those very early times I did what an infant can do, which is that I took, it, it clearly was something wrong with me. And that that forgiveness or that blame seems so integrated into every cell. Much easier to forgive my parents, I mean, to forgive what's out there. And I'm wondering about your work with that. I can really understand when you say that it's ingrained in every cell. It sometimes feels that the sense of shame and the sense of, um, of being lesser is in every cell. And I feel that while we can know forgiveness with others, as you say, before it's possible within ourselves, my feeling and sense, and you know, I, I, I'm a student, you know, of this as much as anybody is, is that, is that, if if I may put it this way, real forgiveness is when we can go into each of ourselves with our tenderness and with our compassion for how painful it is to carry that sort of message within ourselves. And then I feel that what we can offer in the way of forgiveness to others is a world apart from what was possible before that healing happened. But I do agree with you that it sometimes feels it's, 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 it's so much easier outward, so much easier outward. But, you know, that's why I say, you know, this heaviness of heart and this crampedness of heart and, and this holding and this, this prison. Can we enter that? And it, it, it's been my experience that the practice of, of forgiveness can really help us enter that, you know. Um. I have been dealing with lymphoma for just a few weeks now and I have found that uh, I've gone through some very profound changes in my perception of myself 
and I have found in particular that I seem to have moved from being overly concerned with what other people wanted for me and from me to being what I uh, to uh, being what I want for myself. And I have come to the opinion that vision is necessary for me, and I think for people generally. But for me, I feel that there's a need for me to have a vision of what my, my future will be like. And that without that vision, I lose my ability to struggle. Uh, and I, I'm not much yet into spirituality, but I feel that it's apparent to me that spirituality must be a part of that vision. Uh, it can't be just a, well, yes, I plan to uh, sail around the world, but uh, I need to explore spiritually, emotionally, physically. Uh, so I, I wondered what you might have to say about that. Did everybody hear the question? Yeah. The question was, in facing a serious health situation, um, speaking to the importance of having some vision that is based in the spiritual side of ourselves, that gives us the resource and the strength to continue the struggle. Is that? Exactly so. Yeah. As um, I know many of you know, I am HIV positive. I'm living with the AIDS virus. And I've known now for almost two years. And while I've been doing this meditation practice for over 10 years now, I can say that in the last two years, I feel as though I've definitely been on the front burner. <laughs> and haven't got off yet. And the question of having meaning and purpose for however long it is that I'm meant to be around is a question that I carry every day. And so all I can do is maybe offer you, not offer you, share with you my vision for myself. My hope is that for however long I'm going to be around, and I fully intend to be around for another 50 years. <laughs> In fact, I have this little idea that I'm going to learn all the lessons, and then they're going to come up with the vaccine. <laughs> and then I will have done all the work, and you will all still be doing all of yours. <laughs> <laughs> But to be serious for a moment, 
I can say to you that there have been blessings, there are enormous difficulties in my experience of living with the virus, but one of the blessings has been a, a voice that has come from the deepest place of my heart that will be heard, that there will be nothing in my life any longer that is irrelevant, that is not grounded, if possible, in love, that I will know what it means to love as deeply as possible before it is time for me to go. And I feel like that has galvanized and changed my life and given it an energy that was never there before. And I'm doing things, including what I'm doing here this evening, which gives me the greatest fulfillment and the, sen and the greatest sense of purpose that I've ever had in my 41 years. And I feel that um, this has been probably the central gift of what is often a nightmare. And um, I offer you that. Yes. Thank you. I would just like to add, in spirit, since I'm working with a life-threatening experience as well, we're all born terminal. It's how important how we live our lives. And I think one of the saddest things for me in dealing with my experience is that all of my friends are running around trying to heal me when they, they're also born terminal too. You see what I mean? Hmm. And you know, we all have the Grim Reaper sitting on our shoulders at any moment. So I think it's a gift sometimes. It's been a gift for me to have this experience mirrored to me so vividly so that I can get on with living. Thank you. Kevin, I find that many people are, who are my friends and my family are consumed with the concern that I am dying. And uh, I was at first very angry and I would say, I am not dying, I am living. And don't give me your negative vibes. I need support in living. I have since had a change and I now see that feelings are feelings regardless of whether they're expressed as sadness or as joy and I find that I like the feelings coming to me. I can accept someone saying, oh, I'm so scared you're going to die and cry and take that in as I love you and uh, um, I don't know what else I want to say about that, except that I was relating to what you just said, that other people are so concerned about what's happening with me that they seem not to be concerned about what's happening to themselves. And uh, I try and tell people, don't worry about me, but also worry about yourself.
Thank you. I went to a, to a workshop last year and um, there was a, a woman who participated in the workshop who will remain nameless, but she's a very prominent person who deals with dying a lot. And this was a workshop for people who were living with the virus and for their family and, and caregivers and supporters and allies. <coughs> and one of the things that this person said at the conference was, she said, she was asked, what is the meaning of this virus? Why is this virus around? And she said that it is a gift that has been given to those that carry it, that they might go out into the world and teach the lessons that they've been chosen uh, to deliver. And it was a very, very difficult thing for many of us to hear, to be told that what we're dealing with was a gift. And so I just want to, if I may, just draw your attention to the fact that each of the people that have spoken here have said that I consider this to be a gift. And I feel that that is each of our rights to say that in my life it has been a gift, but it's not something that I ever want to hear from anybody else. Because it's one of the ways that people can hold it at a distance, by saying you've been given a gift. Fierce 
gamble of life that one gets caught up in, the, the whatever one wants to call it, the competitiveness of it that you forced into it. Are you familiar with the meditation practice that we do here? Yeah. The insight meditation, the Vipassana meditation? I feel that it's very important to emphasize that in the doing of that practice, if there is any purpose, its purpose is that the qualities that we cultivate in the sitting practice are the same qualities that hopefully we will begin to manifest in living our lives, out on the street, in the difficult situations, in the craziness, so that we can go into every corner (coughs) of our lives with the eye of wisdom that enables us to see and know the truth of what is happening. And if we can live that wisdom and see the truth of what is happening in every dimension and level of our lives, then we must at the same time see through all the illusions that are there and come to the same understandings that you're hearing the people in this room express, that we are all terminal, (coughs) that there are no guarantees that any of us are going to be here one moment from now, and that we can live without having a life-threatening illness with the same degree of urgency in the fullness of our health, if we see that there are, there's nothing that is solid, there is nothing that is guaranteed, the one thing that is certain is that we're all going to die. And the question only is when it's going to happen. And so I feel that that is the evolution of the practice, is seeing clearly the truths of existence. And then we live it. And then we can live, I mean, you know, when I think of the appreciation that there is now for being alive, you know, like today in Mount Auburn Cemetery, seeing those flowers, it was like there was no assumption that I'm going to be around next year to see them. And I'm heading back west tomorrow morning, so I might never see them again. And so I was there as if that was my last time, you know. And in a way that was wonderful, you know, because I just was saturated with those smells and with those colors and the petals falling down onto the bright green grass. And I think about it's taken to shake me up, to wake up, you know, and I think, gosh, you know, if only I didn't have to be shaken quite this severely, you know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But it takes, in spite of the practice, it seems to take so much. But it's not a prerequisite. Are there any further questions? Yes. In some ways, maybe you've already started to answer this, but um, 
it feels like a significant part of your forgiveness process was speaking it to the people who were involved in doing the, the, the harm to you. And I feel like I'm in a place where the people I'm most angry at I'm not sure if it's that they won't receive it. I believe that to be true, that, that they won't they won't play. But I think it's also true that I am not willing to address them. I don't want to go to them to do it. It's um, as if I, there is that wall. And um, I'm wondering, it's, it reminds me of the first question about solid, solid, Forgiveness is a solitary practice, but do you feel like it was essential in your case, or that you did go back to the school, that you did have your have it sort of out with your mother, or if you hadn't done it that way, and given that you you, know, you did come to realize your uh, abuse from your father after his death, what well, what are the alternatives to dealing with it directly with the person who, who harmed you? thinking as you're saying that um, I used to call my father, not when he was around, I used to call him Pharaoh, <laughs> the king of denial, you know. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I mean, it's partly a joke, but I think that there's that part in myself too, you know. He was my teacher, you know. Um, you know, I feel that you know the school never responded to me, you know. Um, sometimes there was a response with my mother. Sometimes there wasn't. I feel that the important thing really is our willingness to consider forgiveness. And then it truly is a flower. And, you know, as the process um, unfolds in the, in the specific way that it will for you, if there is a listening and a care and a tenderness, what needs to happen next will be very clear. It's a real act of faith and trust. But the truly, there is a way into the deepest parts of our hearts, sometimes alone, sometimes with the support of those around us, you know. Sometimes, you know, I would just like be down on my knees and just cry for help where, from anywhere, you know, the trees, you know. But I feel that, um, that the willingness to consider the forgiveness and just in the patience of doing it, is of itself the process, and that we don't need to know the answers to any questions. It's really just in the doing, you know. I think sometimes that if my father were alive and I was to confront him and and that he would never 
say, I'm sorry, it should never have happened. He probably would have stormed out of the room, you know. Because it would just be, I guess, too painful for him to even, he probably doesn't even remember it himself, you know. I don't know. And it doesn't ultimately feel an important question to be answered, you know. I feel that our truth speaking is the process. Our willingness is the process. And my one hope in closing is that I've in no way given the impression that the practice of forgiveness is a passive, submissive sort of practice. I really do feel that it is really the practice of a warrior. It's a courageous and strong practice. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.